Hey everyone, I'm your host Amanda and this is Light It Up. I'm joined by Caroline Ma to shine a light on lighthouse living, where over the next few episodes we delve into stories of what it was like to live at a lighthouse. In today's episode, we will take a trip across Bass Strait to Tasmania with Mike Jenner, who's a former lightkeeper and current treasurer of the Friends of Tasman Island. We'll chat to him about his lightkeeping career, which began way back on the 4th of May, 1969, on Tasman Island. As we will hear, Caro, Mike is a bit of a comedian. So in his <laughs> honour, I have a couple of lighthouse jokes for you. Let's see if you can uh, guess them. <laughs> sure. Here's a bit of a harder one for you. Okay. I know I've called these jokes. It's more like Q&A. What's the difference between a lighthouse keeper and a jeweller? A lighthouse keeper and a jeweller. Mm, you might have to you might have to give me this one. One watches sees and the other sees watches. It's good. That's good. It's not bad. All right, hit me with another one. Add this to the parent joke back. What did the pirate say when he saw a lighthouse? It's gonna be something to do with R, but I'm gonna let you I'm gonna let you tell me anyway. What did what did you're on the right track? Yeah. R she glows. Ah, I feel like I knew that one. Disappointed in myself, but yeah. (laughs) Do you have any more? Lucky last one. Here you go, Caro. You can do it. Uh What kind of house can you pick up? I'm, I can only assume a lighthouse. 10 out of 10. Perfect. <laughs> what did the ocean say to the lighthouse? Not sure. This is making me feel really like non-knowledgeable in, in the dad joke category. What is it? Nothing. She just waved. <laughs> I actually really like that one. That was my favourite one. Best for last. All right. <laughs> I'm going to move on from the jokes, the dad jokes, mm-hmm. to, a, to a little bit more... Uh, trivia-esque questions that you can, you know, bag for your next pop trivia quiz. All right. How many lighthouses are in Tasmania? Um, I think I'm going to either, like, on a big scale here, I'm just going to say three. (laughs) (laughs) Was that your big scale joke? Uh, Sorry, was that your big scale estimate? Well, I was going to say, I was going to say it's on either scale, like many dozens or, you know, only a, a small handful. So I went with the small handful just to be conservative. Great. Look, they're probably the ones. They're probably the ones you can name. But in fact, there are twenty-five lighthouses in right. Tasmania. God, that's a lot. It's quite a lot for such a small island. But that's incredible. That's what I thought. It is an island, so that makes sense. <laughs> it is an island with a lot of coastline and particularly treacherously placed in Bass Strait, where uh, lots of people try and take shortcuts through there and unfortunately right. miss. Here's a question that will reveal its relevance in my interview with Mike Jenner, but what is a briquette? A briquette? Um, well, it's easy to think about bricks and so I look at maybe the structural integrity of, of a lighthouse, but I really have no idea. Apparently it's a compressed brick of coal that they use for fuel. Oh. I think it's a fancy word for like, you know, lumps of coal, but these lumps maybe actually sometimes come in these formed briquettes oh right to power a lighthouse or to power a boat a lighthouse if a fuel to wow run the fires and things like that that's great that's cool yeah so bank that fact for later it will come up mm-hmm. and finally 
Do you know where exactly is Tasman Island Lighthouse in Tasmania? Um, no, I Tasman Island. No, I just I'm revealing that I don't know much about ge- Australian geography here, but no, I'm not too sure. My guess would be, oh, you know, near Launceston, maybe. You're on the right track. It's near Hobart, <laughs> the other famous capital oh, of Tassie. Got it. Mm-hmm. Near Port Arthur, if that helps oh, your orientation around Tassie. Yes. I'm aware of Port Arthur as a concept, not really on a map, but great, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so to set the scene for Tasman Island. Listen to this clip from a 1954 documentary on Tasmania featuring lifestyle, industry and regions produced by the Postmaster General Department to celebrate the sesquicentennial or 150 years of British settlement of Tasmania. Great pronunciation there, man. Oh, definitely had to practice that a couple of times. I was like Sasquatch, Sasquatch centennial. <laughs> A fishing boat sets out to deliver mail and provisions to the lighthouse keeper at Tasman Island, for the post office must seek the most remote places. So sheer are the sides of Tasman Island that even the landing stage is 80 feet above the water, and from there it is necessary to descend in a basket on a cable. The lighthouse, 900 feet up, is reached by a tiny cable skip, which is hauled up the face of the cliff. And it is in this manner that mails, provisions, livestock and passengers make the ascent to the windswept heights. Mail for lonely people, food and supplies for those whose work keeps them in isolation from all their fellow creatures. Work from home, the magic friendly touch of letters for those whose only companions are the shrieking gulls and mocking wind. This is the meaning of warmth and friendship that no man might be forgotten in his work. Back in the city, tourists, always fugitive from the noise. Believe it or not, the video that accompanies this audio does exist freely on YouTube if you Google Tasmanian Story 1954. It's just an interesting time capsule of, like, language and image from that time and the fact that lighthouses were important enough to include on what I think essentially is an advert for mm-hmm. Tasmania. It's kind of like at the moment they've got those Melbourne, Adelaide ads where, you know, they showcase the best yeah. of the best. And often it's what, like food, entertainment. This is like, well, we've got 25 lighthouses, so get around them. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's take a listen to my interview with Mike Jenner. Good afternoon. Hi, is this Mike? Yeah. Hi, Mike. It's Amanda. How are you? I'm good. Good. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this podcast. Oh, yes. Right. Now, <laughs> all right, the penny's just dropped. Um, uh, just, just a minute. I'll be with you in just a sec. <laughs> That's fine. Take your time. <laughs> Hi, Mike. You ready? Take two. <laughs> Hi, Amanda. Yeah, sorry. I've only, I only just surfaced after my scan. That's my senior citizen's afternoon nap. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think my brain has now woken up. So. <laughs> well, I'm glad we uh, you made time for your scan. 
Oh dear. But no, uh, thank you very much for making for making the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, that, that's no problem. Uh, time's really not a problem as long as I'm awake. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, no, so thank you, Mark, for your time. Super happy to be interviewing you today um, about your uh, career, really, as a, a lightkeeper. Um, would you be able to describe your entry into lightkeeping? <laughs> um, oh, yes, it was quite a long time ago. I I I, uh, I I get my OBE this coming Friday. That's over bloody eighty. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, let me how can I explain? Uh, I, I, at the time that I applied to become a lighthouse keeper, I was actually a a, a broadcast radio technician at the local ABC radio station uh, here in Hobart. So I was used to sort of spending long periods on my own uh, at work because we, we were on shifts and uh, uh, only one at a time at, at the transmitters and all sorts of stuff. So, so being away from hotels and, and, and nightlife and stuff like that was no problem. Uh, I uh, was also an amateur radio operator, so... You know, wherever I went and I took radio with me, and my friends came as well sort of thing, so that was not a problem either. In fact, it turned out to be a great hobby to have uh, as a lighthouse keeper. And as a kid, I'd always sort of, um, uh, sort of uh, had the dream of, uh, of A, being a, a, a pilot, and B, uh, living on an island for some reason or other. So I had, by that time, got my private pilot's licence, but uh, I hadn't lived on an island. And I can't remember how I sort of, we must have seen an ad in the paper or something for the department calling for lighthouse keepers. And at the time, you know, I was working shift work and so was my wife. And we used to sort of meet in the hall and say hello now and then. So that wasn't working very well either. So um, uh, I applied for the job and got it. That was in... Uh, 1969. Before I applied to, to sort of find out a bit about it, I drove down to uh, the Cape Bruni Light, which in those days well, they were all still manned then, of course. So uh, I drove down to Cape Bruni and had a yarn with the keepers there. And then the same night, hopped on the mail boat and went down to Matsaika Island and said good day there because at that time the, the usual station you got sent to when you joined was Matsaika, which it's probably one of the most remote lights in Australia then, and still is for that matter. Uh, anyway, uh, eventually they uh, they accepted my application and uh, off we went out to Tasman Island and we arrived there on the 4th of May, 1969. How many uh, lighthouses are in Tasmania? Well, at that time there were, geez, uh, the manned ones were Matt Syke, this is going anti-clockwise around the state, there was... Uh, Matsaika Island, Tasman Island, no, sorry, Matsaika Island, Cape Bruni, Tasman, Ediston, uh, Lowhead at the mouth of the Tamer, and uh, Cape Sorrel on the west coast, they were the manned ones. And at that time, Deal Island and Cliffy Island, they were both sort of came under Victoria, but they were both manned as well. Were you also and, at Swan Island? Uh, oh, oh, sorry, yeah, Swan Island, yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, Swan Island, of course, was manned too, yes. Yeah, I missed that one on the way around, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, so Swan, yeah, Swan was still man. So the Swan was an interesting place. It was it's a pretty little island surrounded by beaches, in in a very uh, windy patch of Bass Strait. Could you describe 
Tasman Island, um, you know, what it was like living there and... Well, well for, for, for a start, the island was awe-inspiring. I'd never sort of been up close to it before. We, we went out there on the uh, on the Cape Pillar, uh, the, uh, which was the, uh, the service ship at the time, uh, and we went there via Matsuika, so we had quite a trip to get out to Tasman. We went from Hobart down to Matsuika, and, and then from Matsuika up to, and back up to Tasman. And, you know, to sort of see the, the haulage way and the flying fox and all the rest of it <laughs> from down at water level, it was, um, you know, it was almost overwhelming. <laughs> what the hell are we let ourselves in for, sort of thing. You know, Tasman's like a big birthday cake. It just sort of sticks up out of the sea with, with one candle on it. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's about, uh, about 800 feet from sea level to the top of the island, 907 feet to the top of the lighthouse. It's quite, it's quite a spectacular sight. Uh, at that time, it was, uh, uh, let me think, in 1967, we had major bushfires down here that sort of just about cleaned out the southeast corner of Tassie, including Tasman Island. So what was left of the vegetation and stuff on Tassie, uh, on Tasman Island, had been literally wiped out as part of that as well. So uh, the whole top of the island was, you know, relatively naked. There were little patches of... Um, uh, sea oaks, uh, and they wouldn't have been any more than eight or ten feet high at the highest. So, so you're saying uh, you found yourself cast away on a barren rock? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> what made you and your wife decide not to turn around right then and there? <laughs> oh, madness, I think. <laughs> We're Tasmanians. I mean, what else would you expect? <laughs> uh, anyway, so we, we ended up living in quarters three, which is the one closest to the tower, so that was pretty convenient. At that time, there was about 150 sheep on the place. Oh wow! That 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 um, the birthday cake can sustain such a large <laughs> herd of sheep. Yeah, and there was um, a, uh, one uh, one uh, young steer wandering around the island as well. The actual day we landed on the on the landing, there were two relief keepers and uh, the and the light keeper who at the time was then uh, acting head keeper the, one of the light keepers was a real wild and woolly sort of a character who um, I don't think he ever slept I don't know whether he ever ate even but he was a wild little bloke and and uh, my my greeting was you're not here for an effort all night get to work <laughs> so I thought, oh, geez <laughs> I was just about ready to jump back in the flying fox basket and go back home again do they do they train you you mentioned you had a uh, you know, a career in radio broadcasting, and now you're going to be a light keeper. Did they? Did they prepare you essentially? For no, this? no, no preparation at all. In those days, it was run by the Department of Shipping and Transport. Uh, the boss of that sat behind a great big kidney-shaped desk in an office in Hobart. The, the whole system was firstly run by the by the uh, the office manager, uh, and once once you walk out their door and and lobbed at the station, they forgot all about you. So. There was no training, no help, no assistance. You were, you were hardly even told what you what you needed to take with you. You know, you didn't know whether you, you know, what you needed in the way of bedding or anything. So uh, it was pretty pretty rough. Well, um, yeah, the first couple of days must have been a bit of a root shock. It was, it was damn hard work because when the Cape Pillar came around, of course, that that was a major stress as well. So we unloaded, um, you know, tons and tons of, uh, of bags of briquettes each. Bag of briquettes weighed a hundred weight. This is all in, in sort of imperial stuff because I don't do, I don't do metric still. 
So we had heaps of this stuff on the landing and and um, and drums of kerosene and all this sort of stuff. So right right from from day one, you know, you, you're lugging around bags of briquettes and stuff like that, and everything had to load on the on the trolley and be uh, hauled up the, the haulage way to the top of the island, and then unloaded and. And, and stored there, and then later loaded onto the trailer behind the tractor and carted further up the island. So, it, you know, so the first um, week or so, it was I, I thought it was going to kill me. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty hard going. And anyway, I, you know, sort of after after a month or two of dragging bags and progress around, and uh, I, I could throw one on my shoulder and walk around with one. So it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it certainly didn't do me any harm physically. How long were you so, on but, the uh, Tasman Island for? Well, May the fourth, we landed there until February the following year. So it wasn't it was only what nine months or something on Tasman. What were your most memorable moments on Tasman Island? It was a great place to live. I, I loved it. It was a spectacular place, and uh, you know, great. Uh, you know, being so high above the ocean, you sort of, uh, you know, the views and all that were fantastic. Um, uh, I, I would have, I, I could have spent a lifetime there. In, in those days, it was still kerosene, so mm. you, know, you, you wound it up to make it rotate and uh, pump, pumped up the kerosene. So it was a, you know, a busy place, and our heating was and cooking was uh, was briquettes, and our fridges ran on kerosene and all that sort of stuff. Were there any other creatures on the island other than no, sheep and uh, the only the only native stuff on the island are, are stinks. There's several varieties of little lizards. Uh, no snakes. There were a few feral cats, but we never really saw them. There were two or three called rookeries for uh, mutton birds or you know, shearwaters, including one variety of shearwater that's fairly much unique to southeast Tassie. But you didn't see that much of them either because they were sort of down over the edge of the cliff. What was Eddiston Point like in comparison? Now, Edison still is uh, the, the Gold Coast of Tasmania. There's miles of beautiful beaches. The weather's you know, generally pretty pleasant up there. Uh, the station there is, is beautiful. It's all built out of granite that was uh, carved out of the foreshore. So beautiful, um, three beautiful granite houses and a big granite tower, only two light keepers there. At that time, the road out there was pretty pathetic, so we got almost no one came out there. It was, it was as isolated as living as living on an island, pretty much. We used to go hunting kangaroos, and uh, yeah, not only that, but there was a a, a cray fisherman that lived uh, not uh, only a few hundred yards away from the light station. I got very friendly with him, so depending on what shift I was on at the lights, I often used to go out with him mm. in his in his boat uh, cray fishing, and didn't like eating crayfish, so we lived on kangaroo and crayfish pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> living um, off the so. land and sea. Yeah, no, it, it really was. It was lovely. You know, despite transferring back to the um, to you know the radio department, I understand you're still currently involved in you know lighthouses of some sort as a volunteer. <laughs> uh, through through amateur radio, uh, worldwide, the amateur radio operators have a thing called the Lighthouse and Lightship Weekend. So one weekend a year, they, they man as many lighthouses as they can around the world, and we all talk to each other. Uh, through amateur radio, and um, one of the people that was sort of involved with friends of Tasman Island was a, was a radio ham, and it came up uh, for the uh, lightship uh, lighthouse weekend. I was invited to join the ten days on the island that they have twice a year doing maintenance out there, and I was invited to, to go out and uh, 
and, and set up the radio on Tasman. So that was, what was that, eight, nine years ago? My secretary tells me it was 2012. So uh, so out, out I went for, for 10 days on the island, back to the same house I lived in in 1967, set up the radios in the same room that I had them in in 1967 and played radios for a week, plus uh, mowing lawns and other things out there. <laughs> so, so that sort of accidentally got me involved with Friends of Tasman Island. Within days, <laughs> we got dobbed in. So since then, uh, I've been the, uh, the treasurer and, and my wife, Karen, is the secretary. So that's still our involvement. And uh, so we still play lighthouses effectively. Every, every year, the um, Rotary Club of uh, Tasman Peninsula have, a, have a, a, a day trip out to the island by helicopter. What would be your message or parting reflections to the people listening to this episode today, particularly if they are just embarking on their lighthouse journey? <laughs> uh, dear, uh, I, I consider myself to be extremely lucky that, uh, that we were able to live this life because there's almost nothing like it nowadays. Uh, there's no manned lights. But the, some of them have uh, caretakers on them. So, uh, so Kate Bruni uh, has a caretaker there. Matt Syker, I've got caretakers on it. They, they, they're purely voluntarily. They don't get paid for it, but they live there for six months. We're hoping to get a caretaker on Tasman Island eventually, but that hasn't happened just. But it, it's just sort of a romantic thing. I mean, I, I, I choke up just thinking about it. <laughs> um, but, but only because I've been there, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. Any anyone that's been out on the on the uh, rotary trips to Tasman, yeah, or inspired by us, Parks and Wildlife have now built uh, a walking a, a high class walking track out on Tasman Peninsula that goes out to to Cape Pillar and, and what is known as the Blade, which overlooks Tasman Island. That's really put us on the map. Anyone that's done that walk and looked out over Tasman Island has been just totally wrapped. It'll never be the same as it was when it was a manned lighthouse, obviously. None of them will be. I, I'm really, really, really grateful that I had the opportunity to to, to, to do what I did and to be there then because uh, it wasn't long after I left that one by one they all became unattended. So I think by 1970, we came out in 73, I think uh, Tasman was closed down in 76, was it, Karen? So it was only three or four years afterwards. So uh, you know, my days were numbered. Anyway, yeah. You know, look, uh, thank you for for your interest. Uh, you know, I it just it, it it was a great time, a great time to live, and a great a, a great life on the lights. And uh, it's such a shame now that uh, you know people nowadays just don't get the opportunity to experience uh, what we experienced. Um, you know, we've got model lighthouses and things all around the place here. We've got two out in the front garden that light up every night and. One in the lounge room here that lights up night. <laughs> We've got lighthouse paraphernalia around the place. So I can still live and think about it. We've got all our pictures and all our memories and stuff, but the current generations are never going to get the opportunity to do that. There are very, very few things you can do now that are anywhere near like it. It's getting all too rare, unfortunately. Um, you know, people want to live in cities and go to the pub on Saturday nights and things. <laughs> It's all different to what it used to be. 
Well, that was really interesting. Like you said earlier, just a real time capsule into what it was like being around lighthouse culture at that time. One of the things I found really interesting was I think he mentioned that he's still not using the metric system. You know, what he was doing in the lighthouse, he needed to use Imperial and is still not really caught up on that. So (laughs) I'm not sure if you'd find many people in Australia that are still abiding by Imperial, but, you know, that's Mike Jenner. How do you get around? That's my question. (laughs) How does he get around? In my life as a 26-year-old living here, born here, I've never really come across anyone that partakes in that. Um, So I wanted to sort of look into it. And so the imperial system in Australia was phased out in 1974. And um, Mike mentions that he gets the job when he looks at the ad in the paper for this role at the lighthouse. It's 1969. So he had a few, you know, a solid five years or whatever using it in his job. And then obviously his whole life before that. So I can understand why he probably still uses the imperial system. Although it's been, you know, 40 odd years, 50 odd years since then. Um, But that was very interesting to me. And I found that quite intriguing that he still goes by that. I think it would be quite an inconvenience in his life, but I love that he's steadfast in his, in his journey of using Imperial. He's a true believer in the, the OG system by the sounds of it, superior Imperial system. To me, it's as foreign as like, I don't know, like a different language, really, like the whole conversion from imperial to metric. I, don't, I really don't know how he um, makes sense of the world and gets around. In true, I guess, confirmation bias, I just can't imagine using imperial. Metric is just so obviously better in my in my mind, um, you know, temperature especially. But I don't know if is temperature, does Fahrenheit count as imperial or am I just lumping it all together? Maybe maybe that's really purely just like distance and weight and stuff. I don't know. Do you know oh. if that's if Celsius and Fahrenheit is a, is does that correlate to imperial and metric or is that just an American British thing? I think it's an American British thing. Like when I think about Fahrenheit, I immediately associate with America. But then they also do their measurements in miles when they talk about yeah. distances. So I imagine which is imperial. America is just so. which is imperial. So. I think America's just behind the times. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, you know, miles and feet, I think, yeah. Do you think you could have hacked out an existence uh, hauling briquettes every day, Kara, up and down the hill for hours just for uh, some fuel and fire? I could tell you that I would absolutely not be able to do that. I have no upper body strength and it kind of makes my back hurt even thinking about it. He did it for like nine months and every day I'd, I mean, I would get jacked, but I just don't think I'd be cut out for it. <laughs> it reminds me of, of like a montage in like a movie, you know, like a training sequence of just hauling briquettes up and down, rocky sort of Kill Bill-esque, and I can tell you I'm not cut out for it. <laughs> like the weight version of Karate Kid instead of, you know, wax on, wax off, you're uh, just lugging briquettes up. Yeah, exactly. That's right. I wonder if there'd be a cheaper form of weight than having to buy, you know, a home gym set up these days. Maybe there's something in there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's purely functional strength. Like, you know, you may not have, like, the most aesthetic-looking biceps, but you'd be able to, you know, really, like, (laughs) lift some some actual weight for sure. So continuing uh, Mike's time capsule-esque vibe, he's documented a couple of his his lighthouse journeys 
on his website if you go to Mm tasmanisland.org.au. And in particular, his Tasman Island videos are definitely worth a look. One of them called Tasman Memories 1969 begins with this dramatic when the rain falls, like zooming in on Tasman Island ever so slowly. But they are worth a look not only for that introduction, but the amazing photos actually which he narrates over from his time there. And more recently, he's also uploaded a second video called Amateur Radio Tasman 2012, where he literally takes you on a helicopter view of the island. So it's kind of like Google Earth on Tasman Island by helicopter as if you had virtual reality on. So definitely worth a look. That sounds incredible. I love that his passion has continued, I guess, over the many decades that he's still motivated to go back to the island and continue reliving but also preserving what is there. Now, speaking of uh, preservation and awareness about lighthouse events, there are actually two major events in the lighthouse calendar. So everyone, get your diaries out, Caro, see you there. There actually exists a National Lighthouse Day in the US at least. Oh, wow. Just have a guess. What, what month do you think it's in? Um, okay, US lights. I don't know if lighthouses require any sort of summer or winter um, thoughts or anything, but I'm just going to say summer, let's say July for them. Oh, my God. You are so close. 7th of August is National mm-hmm. Lighthouse Day. Yeah. On the right side. Yeah. And it seems like August is like Lighthouse Month because there's also the International Lighthouse and Lightship Weekend on the third full weekend of August every year. Mm. And in my investigations, I came across IWLW.net where on the front page it actually says that this year, 2022, is the 25th anniversary of that event. Oh, wow. What does a lightship refer to? A lightship is essentially a lighthouse or a light that floats on a ship. So you can imagine that some of the uh, dangers in the sea aren't necessarily attached to land or near land, and so they just have these floating vessels that have lights on them. Um, I think a bigger version of a buoy, a much bigger version of a buoy, of the scale of, you know, navigational aids from floating buoys up to an actual ship with a light on it. Yeah, I can imagine that being quite large if it actually has an impact on being able to guide people. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Mike mentions his heavy involvement in the uh, the radio scene but not the uh, Hamish and Andy kiss you know, Fox FM type radio that we're used to. I think it's more the uh, <laughs> talking to your mates on radio, long distance. Do you know what's about that well, kind of radio, Karen? I, I don't know anything about that, but he did mention that he was, yeah, an amateur radio operator, but also a broadcaster at the ABC, which is, <laughs> I just love this idea of, I think we've come across this in a few episodes of him just being an amateur radio operator and then being able to get this job at the ABC and then looking at an ad in the paper to be a lighthouse keeper and then just getting the job. The 60s and 70s are just a wild time that that we couldn't really operate in now. But he said that he had no preparation or training to become a lighthouse keeper, but he just also didn't really seem like he had 
heaps of radio experience, but he was able to get this incredible job. Um, But no, I don't know like much about radio at all. But he seemed, you know, very passionate about finding things and I feel like he he's got a voice for it I think that I could I could picture him being on the radio a voice for radio a voice for radio a voice for radio I guess the podcast is kind of like the modern day version of radio where it's not quite live but still just audio people bantering yes exactly and yeah as you mentioned doesn't really know (laughs) much about the modern things modern podcasts or modern radio types now but yeah, it'd be interesting if he could. I wonder if he has any archives of him being on the ABC from back in the day, because I think that'd be pretty interesting to his friends and family nowadays. That would be pretty cool, hey? Not only does he feature on this podcast, but he, you know, has had forty years of experience being on <laughs> the audio waves, the airwaves. He's a man That's of right. the seventies, I think. We can conclude, Caro. Not only does That's he love right. the imperial system, but he loves radio. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> It's a great time to be talking about Lighthouse. It's the 25th anniversary of the event. August is coming up. See you there, Caro. Yeah, I'll set my uh, Google calendar for the 7th of August. Thank you firstly to Mike Jenner, our resident comedian, for sharing his experience at Tasman Island. Thank you to Janine Tan from the State Library and Archive Service of Libraries Tasmania for the use of the Tasmanian story clip. Thanks, of course, to my co-host, Caroline Ma. Up next is an interview with Peter Braid, a Queensland lighthouse kid. Until then, stick around for a short chat with Christine Freider and how sometimes the sea life chooses you. Thank you for listening. And, you know, as part of your you know, investigations into your own family history that you've come across a, a link to light keepers and light stations. Could you share a bit about that, about that part of your family history? Well, that all come about in about 19, 1989, 1990, when my parents took up caretaking a lighthouse at Port Curtis Island. And then my mum discovered that her grandfather was also a lightkeeper in New South Wales at at um, Sugarloaf or what's now known as Seal Rocks, or is it the other way around? Seal Rocks and Sugarloaf, one of them. So your you know your parents unwittingly became lightkeepers, um, you know, without knowing that actually lightkeeping you know runs in the family by the sounds of it. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they didn't. My mum didn't know at all until she sort of was at the lighthouse. She did write a story for it, which I can read out for you if you want, and it sort of basically tells you how she discovered that her grandfather was a light keeper also. Yeah, that'd be great. <clears throat> okay, then, this is this is my mum's story. This is from Rosemary Freider, and at the time she was 51 years of age. She's now deceased. And I think this was written in about 91 18, uh, 1991, and the title of it is How Could I Stay Away? Steering the fishing boat through rough waves at Watson's Bay in New South Wales, Rosemary Card sighed, some first date, she moaned to herself, watching Bill Freighter, 24, fishing from the other end of the boat. The waves grew bigger, turned the boat around, Bill yelled to her, 
pushing the motor till away from her, Rosemary 19 almost swamped the boat and then suddenly turning it under her huge wave and took and Bill took over. That's it, cried Rosemary, drenched and terrified. Never ever am I going on a boat again. She stuck to her guns, although Rosemary still went fishing with Bill at weekends. She refused to board a boat again. Six months after that first date, Rosemary and Bill married. Over the years, they had three children, Christine, Roger and Jennifer. As the kids grew up, Bill often took them out boating, but Rosemary always refused. Then one day after the eldest two children had left home, Bill thought an 11 meet, uh, bought an 11-metre launch called Eureka. Let's head up to Queensland, up the Queensland coast to Rockhampton, he suggested to Rosemary. It's been almost 20 years since you were last set foot on a boat. I think it's time you try it again. Reluctantly, Rosemary agreed. Agreed. A few days into the trip, she was surprised to find that she was really enjoying herself. Uh, soon she was so hooked that her and Bill sold their home and bought a new 13-metre launch, Trelawney, and began living on board. But money was tight and we needed a job. But Bill decided one evening, um, I needed a job, decided one evening, but something that will let us stay close to the water. They found a job caretaking the Cape Capricorn Lighthouse on Curtis Island in Queensland. By now, they were living on an 11-metre yacht to hunger. Their new job meant that they would live on the land and take fishing trips on their boat. Then Rosemary remembered something her aunt, her aunt Gwen Smith, had told once told her years before about her family history. Apparently, Rosemary's grandfather, Albert Williams, used to live at a lighthouse somewhere. As Rosemary wrote to libraries and lighthouses all around Australia, information gradually filtered back. Running away to sea when he was 13, Albert's father, William Wallace Williams, had sailed to New Caledonia. Returning years later, he took up a job at Seal Rocks Lighthouse. Six months into Rocks Light Lighthouse archives, and it was the final link to the family puzzle. Guess what? I've discovered, she teased Bill. My two great uncles, Percy and William, stayed on as lighthouse keepers. Can you believe that? Just like us, it seems my whole family has loved the sea. Bill shook his head. After all those years, you thought you hated the sea. <laughs> he chuckled with family history like yours. It's amazing you could stay away. Light. House. Light. 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 House. Lighthouse. Lighthouse. Thanks for having me on your show. <laughs> I've been a long time listener. I really love your work. <laughs>